Welcome to the Why They Are So Angry podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carol Francois, a proud baby boomer with over 30 years experience as an educator and learning leader. And I'm Courtney Square, your resident first generation millennial. Join us as we present an unvarnished look at systemic racism in America throughout history and up to modern times. We invite you to pull up a chair, put in your earbuds, and allow us to enlighten, educate, and explore the real reasons why Black African Americans are so angry. Because until you know the whole history, it isn't American history at all. Everywhere I look, Lord, I see FBI's. I'm getting sick and tired of government spies. Sick and tired, but also inspired. According to those are lines from Richard Wright's 1949 poem, The FBI Blues, and he spells I, it's a play on word, E-Y-E. And it's a, you know, it's a satirical commentary on how the FBI operated a very complex spying operation on many of America's best known Black African-American musicians, actors, writers, performers, who the FBI figured were dangerous activists out to destroy the American way of life. Now that sounds like a song I know called The Hip Hop Police by rapper Chameleonaire featuring hip hop icon Slick Rick that talks about the not so secret police force that many, many hip hop artists have been followed by. And there are other hip hop classics that shine a light on racial injustice and the ever watching eye of the government and law enforcement. Well, Courtney, ever since the first cave person drew on a cave wall, artists have used their art to comment on the human condition. And particularly like these hip hop artists and Richard Wright to decry inequity and man's inhumanity to man. You're right, Ann Carol. Art in all its forms has been used to speak truth to power using language and emotions that we all can relate to. That's right. Black African-Americans speaking through their arts has a long, long tradition in this country, but that tradition has a little known connection to the Caribbean islands, to France and West African nations. So let me tell you a little bit about that. In the early years of the 20th century, you know, it was very fashionable for wealthy patrons, people with a lot of money, to operate what were known as salons. And those salons were to support and encourage free and open thought and even dissent through the arts. Now, many of us don't know that a well-to-do family of Black sisters organized the salon in Paris back in the 20s. Now, Paulette Nardal was one of those sisters, and she's a Black intellectual and a journalist who was born on the island of Martinique. Now, along with two of her seven sisters, she founded a salon in the Parisian suburb of Clamart, where people of all genders, races, and religions gathered to discuss local and international Black solidarity, culture, and the arts. Now, Paulette was one of the drivers of the development of Black literary consciousness, and she's credited with creation of the what was called the Negritude or Negritude genre uh, of writing. And she did that by introducing French intellectuals to works and writers from the Harlem Renaissance. Now, in fact, 
the Harlem Renaissance poet Claude McKay and a young West African student named uh, Leopold Singor met at the sisters' salon. Now, decades later, Singor became the first president of Senegal and the inspiration for Black French anti-colonial poetry. He was very much influenced by Claude McKay. Now, later, I'll tell you why McKay was in France at that time, but be assured it wasn't for a casual vacation. Now, just like we've been talking about, even back in the 20s and there in Paris, police monitored the Nardal uh, sisters salon closely and labeled it a site of sedition. And this surveillance by law enforcement foreshadowed what was about to happen to artists, especially writers, for the first half of the 20th century. So this was only the beginning. Only the beginning. Only the beginning. So let's start with stage and motion picture performers and writers. Three celebrated giants of the American theater became FBI targets. Alice Childress received the Tony Award for the role she played in the 1944 Broadway classic, Anna Lucasia. And if you haven't seen that, it's excellent. And she would become the first black woman to professionally produce a play in the United States. Lorraine Hansberry, was the first black woman to produce on Broadway with A Raisin in the Sun, the famous play, and also the first black female dramatist to win the New York Drama Critics Circle Award. And of course, Paul Robeson, we all know uh, as a towering figure, both in the struggle for civil rights and within uh, the, uh, the field of performance. He was an actor, a playwright, a singer, and he even sh shared the World Peace Prize with Picasso and Pablo Neruda. Now, because of the association with the Committee for the Negro of the, uh, of the Arts, Marxist and communist though, all three of these celebrated artists uh, were under a government-led concerted effort to banish them from the public eye. Even well-respected powerhouse acting, acting duo, Ossie Davis and Ruby Dee, who were activists all throughout their lives and prominent in the civil rights movement and founding members of the Association of Artists for Freemen, they had FBI dossiers kept on them for many years. And when I think about it now, at least when I do now, I think of Paul Robeson and his soft yet very powerful baritone. That's what comes to mind. But he was really a force on the scenes for the rights of African-Americans and Blacks around the world. And he took great losses for it. And Ozzie Davis and Ruby Dee, of course, are the quintessential Black love power couple. But also, they were really out there risking their careers to speak up and speak out about injustice. And like you mentioned, Aunt Carol, some of the stuff that, you know, these organizations were doing were really, really shady, how they would monitor, you know, these stars. It wasn't some shady organization. It was the government and the FBI. So let's unpack that even more for our listeners. You're absolutely right, Courtney. Uh, writers, artists, and performers were under observation for quite some time by the FBI. For example, in the early 50s, 
um, the FBI started an investigation and an extensive file on the singer and civil rights activist Josephine Baker. They tracked her comments in the international press that were critical of racial discrimination in the U.S. Now, the Bureau never formally opened an investigation on Baker, but it fielded several requests from the Immigration and Naturalization Service to collect derogatory information that would help make the case for denying her a visa and barring her entry to the country. And she remained out of the country in France for many, many years. And again, all for speaking out against racism and the treatment of Black African-Americans and Black people around the world. Now, I can see why a lot of Black performers and celebrities and sports people became expatriates. Remember Jimmy Wink Winkleman from our horse racing episode, he spoke out about the racism that he experienced in America, and he went to Russia um, and he was a, a contemporary of Josephine Baker and Paul Robeson. And Paul Robeson also went to Russia uh, as well. Your history is, is exactly right. In fact, many of these artists did that. And speaking of artists, let's talk about musicians. Musicians have been a favorite target for the FBI, just like those hip hop artists that you talked about earlier. Get this, Nat King Cole, Jimi Hendrix, Tupac Shakur, even Marvin Gaye all have FBI files. And it's well documented how the FBI infiltrated the jazz music scene in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s under the guise of rooting out drug trafficking. But in essence, they were looking for political dissonance. And Billie Holiday's story is probably the best known example of that. You're right, Aunt Carol. When Billie Holiday's song Strange Fruit, the very haunting ode and warning about the terror suffered by African-Americans in the South due to lynching began to get traction, the Treasury Department's Federal Bureau of Narcotics, um, aka the FBI, that's what they started out being, put a target on Billie's back. Uh, the groundbreaking song was a protest song, and many African-Americans understood the experience that she was talking about. Now, the FBI feared that the song would compel people to protest and they needed to step in somehow. So after doing what the FBI does best, gather intelligence, they learned of Billie Holiday's heroin addiction. And once that was discovered, the head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, Harry Anslinger, uh, put, his, put his sinister plan to work. Now, he hated Black agents in his department. He hated it. But Anslinger knew that he couldn't send a white agent into Billy's camp. He would stick out like the sore thumb. So instead, he sent Jimmy Fletcher, who was an agent. And his objective was to infiltrate Billy's life and her camp up to and including selling her drugs to maintain his cover. So there we have it, Dirty Tricks, just like the COINTEL uh, project that we talked about in other episodes. And uh, it wasn't beyond the FBI to fit, pull out all the stops to try to keep different artists from having their voices heard because they saw them as people who could make a difference. Now, many, many more performers uh, than those that we've talked about were under FBI surveillance at one time or another. But it's the deep and intentionally disrupt, uh, disruptive surveillance of Black African-American writers that's the most chilling, Courtney. As a writer, I'm sure you will find this disturbing. Now, in his book titled FBI's E-Y-E-S, 
just like uh, Richard Wright's poem that I read earlier. William Maxwell, he ferreted through almost 14,000 pages of newly released FBI files to expose the Bureau's close policing over five decades of African-American writers. They had a whole team of agents who would read the poems, plays, essays, and novels of these writers trying to find problems. And I use that with a quote. Now, starting in 1919, uh, which was year one of Harlem's Renaissance, and also coincidentally, J. Edgar, Edgar Hoover's start at the FBI, these agents started to closely monitor all of the developments in African-American writing. Now, Maxwell, he described how the FBI even threatened the international travels of, of these writers and prepared to jail dozens of them in times of what they considered national emergency. No, that is scary. It's very, very scary. I know that Halloween is just passed by the time this records, but that's scary. And as a writer, it, it terrifies me that the FBI has the power to monitor me based on my thoughts and feelings and what I put on the page. And especially if I write about African-American people's struggles, systemic racism, um, most Americans think we have free speech, but in this case, I'm thinking we might not, or it comes with a big cost. It, it comes with a very big cost. And the, the story that the FBI would put out is that the aim was to anticipate political unrest, which would lead to riots or problems or, you know, some type of disruption in America. But ironically, Ironically, many of these writers knew that their readership contained FBI agents, which sometimes caused them to actually address the spying cleverly in their works, like we saw with Richard Wright. But sadly, some of them found themselves censoring themselves because of it, because they knew they were being watched and they knew they were under, under uh, surveillance and something could happen to them. Now, uh, in an odd twist, though, uh, Maxwell talks about the fact that the FBI surveillance actually influenced the creation of and public reception of African-American literature uh, during the heart of the 20th century. And they did this because some of those agents would actually write uh, critics, uh, criticisms in the newspapers and magazines about these works. And uh, actually, it ended up kind of going the other way and highlighting some of these writers who maybe wouldn't have been highlighted if the FBI didn't decide to read their works and then write uh, literary criticism of them. And what's, how are you spying and getting intelligence and you get so upset that you want to write like a critical think piece, like you, now you've exposed yourself? <laughs> well, and that was actually their assignment. They were supposed to, sometimes uh, in those, those uh, criticisms, they were supposed to try to discredit the writers. But it was ironic that some of them got caught up, so caught up in the works that they actually gave credit and talked about how well the pieces were written. Well, that hey, that's a great backfire to that plan. But Aunt Kara, are there any activist artists, and I know the answer to this, that stand out as a favorite to you? 
Well, there are a lot of them, um, but some of the earlier writers that stood out to me uh, were, uh, one of them was Claude McKay, whom I mentioned earlier. And I think his story deserves special attention. Now, when I taught high school English, McKay, as I said, was a favorite. So his story really grabbed me knowing what had happened to him. Um, and it's it's one, again, of the FBI identifying a writer, determining that this person was a problem, and then working to discredit the person. Now, in 1922, J. Edgar Hoover decided that McKay was a dangerous revolutionary based on his poem titled, If We Must Die. Now, FBI, FBI agents warned about him uh, because he had, in their words, published a collection of radical poems, and he was a, quote, notorious Negro revolutionary. Now, here's the poem, and my students love this when I taught it. They, they really identified with what this guy was saying. Of course, I taught high school, and, you know, you have the angst of the high school student, but here's what McKay said. If we must die, let it not be like hogs, hunted and pinned in an inglorious spot, while round us bark the mad and hungry dogs, making their mock at our accursed lot. If we must die, oh, let us nobly die, so that our precious blood may not be shed in vain. Then even the monsters we defy shall be constrained to honor us, though dead. Oh, kinsmen, we must meet the common foe, though far outnumbered, let us show us brave and for their household blows deal one death blow. What, though before us lies the open grave? Like men, we'll face the murderous cowardly pack pressed to the wall, dying but fighting back. Now, in the summer of 1922, word reached the FBI that McKay was planning a trip to the Soviet Union. Now, when McKay left the country, the FBI went into overdrive. They cross-examined people. They read ship schedules. They scoured McKay's passport records, and they even pressed a distant relative, actually a distant acquaintance, uh, for clues about him in her Harlem apartment. Now, immigration and custom officials were ordered to confine McKay, his baggage, and documents if he ever tried to re-enter the United States. And get this, the ports of New York, Los Angeles, Seattle, Portland, New Orleans, and Baltimore were all put on notice. So they were on the lookout for this dangerous revolutionary oh my like you would think he's a bank robber or a terrorist or <laughs> well, <laughs> no, that he poem just, he wrote a poem I, he wrote a poem and the poem you know spoke truth but obviously it was uh, a truth that the fbi was threatened by now for more than a decade uh, McKay was well aware that he was being tailed and he knew that government spies were after him and definitely they were not going to let him back in the country. So he eventually lived abroad until 1934. And that's when earlier I talked about he met Singor at the uh, Nardell um, Salon. 
that's where uh, that's how that connection was made because he couldn't come back to the United States. And in fact, he spent most of the height of the Harlem Renaissance during the time with all those writers like Langston Hughes and uh, others were writing and, and conferring with each other and collaborating with each other. He, he ended up having to stay in Europe uh, until 1934 because he was wary of returning to Harlem or even trying to get back in the, into the United States. Well, he sounds like a pretty prolific character. I mean, he would fit right in with NWA's F the Police or Fight the Power with Public Enemy. That poem fits right in line with those. So as the kids would say, Claude McKay is pretty dope. Um, so I'm going to have to add him to my list of favorite I poets as well as favorite MCs because he is very hip hop. Yeah, he, he was on it. He was on it. Uh, and his writing said a lot and obviously he got punished for it. Now, another writer who uh, was he wasn't punished the same way as Claude McKay, but he certainly had an exhaustive FBI surveillance done on him. And that was James Baldwin. Uh, he had a 1,884-page FBI file covering the period between 1958 and 1974. They stayed on his case, and it was the largest file compiled on any Black African-American artist during the civil rights era. And it shows when you look at the file, because you can, uh, that the FBI anxiously tracked Baldwin's movements, his writings, his speeches, his phone conversations, and even his sexual preferences. Well, James Baldwin is a powerhouse, and I recommend any of our listeners, if you're not familiar with his work, get familiar with his work. So I can definitely understand if the FBI was looking or rooting for, you know, to silence someone, he would be on that list. Yes, he, he was a powerful voice and continues to be a powerful voice. Everything that Baldwin has to say is still relevant today, long after his passing. Now, reading what writers were publishing or even thinking about publishing wasn't the only thing the FBI was up to. Let me really alarm you. The FBI prepared to do what were called preventive arrest of most of these artists and writers. That is, they plan to arrest these people in the event a war broke out. Now they didn't have to commit a crime. They didn't have to do anything. If there was a war, the FBI planned to round these people up and de detain, in other words, put them in jail. But just, just a war, any war, a any war, war <laughs> any war. Any war, let's just have a war, war. and let's go find these people. Now, who are they after? Well, 27 of the 50 writers on the FBI's files, they were, they were keeping track of about 51 people. 27 of them were accused of communism and other extremism. So they, those 27 were put on the FBI's secret dragnet known as the Custodial Detention Index. Now, this custodial detention index was a list. It was basically a hot list of people who could be rounded up in time of war or national emergency simply because J. Edgar Hoover deemed them to be, quote, dangerous to the public peace and safety of the United States government. So how you got on that list was eh, kind of broad and very arbitrary. 
but it included anyone suspected of, in Hoover's words, affiliation with organizations engaged in activities on behalf of a foreign nation, participation in dangerous subversive movements, advocacy of the overthrow of the government by force and violence, etc. So that was straight from the pen of J. Edgar Hoover. And it sounds good on paper, but we know what he really meant. <laughs> he meant, I don't care. If I don't like you, you're going. If I don't That's like right. You, That's right. Going. If I don't like what you're saying, you're going to jail. Right. The et cetera. <laughs> et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> Now, Hoover, you know, he was he was really into this. And he even said, can't anybody on that list, um, they should be investigated through public libraries. So let's go to the libraries and look through their works and find out if they're up to something. Go to the newspapers, look in the old newspapers that were called morgues at the time, go through the newspaper morgues and uh, see, you know, who's writing this, these, these divisive, dissonant kinds of things. Now, there were white writers on the list. Don't get me wrong. It wasn't all Black African-Americans, but it was the Black African-American writers who more often uh, were found guilty by the FBI agents of speaking for revolution and against the U.S. government. So they were disproportionately trailed, studied, and added to that custodial detention index. This is giving me 1984, A Brave New World, Fahrenheit 451, <laughs> A Handmaid's Tale, The Hunger Games, Divergent, every, like, and it's <laughs> under the guise of the American government. And I'm sure the spin on the story would be, you know, they're dangerous, they're, they're Negroes, they're going to try to just change your way of life. You know, I'm sure the spin would for the public would be great, but this is scary. It Very is sinister. Scary. Oh yeah, it's scary and it's sinister. But here's the part that really should scare us all. And we're starting to see this right now here in America today. The FBI didn't just rely on its agents to dig up information on writers. There were informers at major publishers and magazines. For example, both the Reader's Digest and the Communist Party's newspaper called Daily Worker contained bureau moles. And remember earlier, I talked about uh, Harry Belafonte. Well, it turns out that I believe his psychiatrist and one of his publishers was a mole for the FBI. So you can't even go to therapy and just <laughs> unload, like I'm doing all the civil rights work as Harry Belafonte to my psychiatrist and you're oh wow that's I'm I'm not shocked but I'm I'm disturbed but I am I'm not shocked and you know what if we had podcasts probably back then we'd probably be on there that list too in Carol well hey and I'm not <laughs> ruling out the fact that people aren't aren't on list we're gonna talk about that later because right now um the FBI is uh following people who are considered dissidents like the uh, folks who are part of the Black Lives Matter movement so I'm Hopefully we're not on it, but if we are, that's an honorable list to be there. I'll put it on a t-shirt. There you go. <laughs> so, Courtney, there you have it. The FBI, in some respects, when you think about it, we the, they were the biggest fans of Black African-American performers, musicians, actors, and especially writers, because they sure kept some close tabs on them. They knew what was up, and they even tried to imitate their writing. 
uh, in order to disrupt and disturb uh, the community. So, um, yeah. Oh, I, that would make me mad as a writer because I know my voice on the page. And if something, I'm like, I didn't know. No, no, no. I didn't write that. I, oh, uh, that, oh, this is just, it's it's getting in my crawl because I'm I a writer. I know. I knew, I knew this episode would get to you. I knew it would. And in fact, I knew you would also have a story about a well-known artist performer whose career was harmed by spying and it was also harmed by someone we wouldn't have expected you are absolutely right there was a quote that a friend of mine my friend kiana posted on facebook and it said black women will always be too loud for a world that never wanted to hear them in the first place and that truly encapsulates the story i'm going to share today about the one and only Eartha Kitt and the day that Catwoman met the Ladybird. I know it sounds like a comic book title, but it's a true story. Now, Eartha Kitt was born on January 17th, 1927 to less than desirable circumstances. And I'm not going to get into those, but I recommend reading her two autobiographies, um, Diary of a Sex Kitten and Thursday's Child, because it really gets into how she was brought up. And it's amazing that she survived and thrived. But this story is going to take place at the height of her career. By 1960, Eartha Kitt was a star who already had a star on the Walk of Fame. She had Tony and Grammy and Emmy nominations under her belt. She was a Broadway star and a recording star. And when she was even earlier than that, when she was 20 years old, Orson Welles dubbed her the most exciting woman in the world. Wow, that's a lot coming from Orson Welles. Exactly. Now, in 1967, she took the role on of Catwoman from Julie Newmar, who had played it in the first two seasons of the Batman TV show. Um, She became Catwoman in the third and final season. So that was introducing her to a whole new uh, audience because up until then, again, she was on Broadway. She was singing overseas. She was a cabaret singer. She was very international, But bringing her into television homes every week when Batman would be on, that was a whole new uh, audience for her who got introduced to that fun and flirty, sexy persona. She was the blueprint of the sex kitten. And any woman who has played Catwoman since Eartha Kitt has used that vibe. So that purring, everything with a purr, that slinking around, all that, that was not Julie Newmar. That was Eartha Kitt. Well, I remember watching Batman back in those days. I was still a kid and I was just enthralled by Eartha Kitt's performance. And in fact, uh, your grandfather, uh, he made it a point to be in the room when Catwoman was on. So, uh, you know, his generation was enthralled (laughs) as well. (laughs) But beyond that sexy image, Eartha Kitt worked with several groups, including Rebels with a Cause, which were artists who helped with juvenile delinquency and poverty, and she fought against racism as well. Now, those two factors, her celebrity status and her activism, were were the reason why Lady Bird Johnson, the first lady of Lyndon B. Johnson, personally invited her to her Women Doers Luncheon. 
Now, the luncheon was to find out what American women could do about issues that were pressing the country at the time. So if you think America's divided now, and I wasn't around in the 60s, but I've read some books and I know some people. Well, I was there and it was divided. So subjects like race, crime, poverty, and the war in Vietnam were splitting the country in two. So Kit had been invited to the this event to speak out on those things. And she was really passionate and she really thought she was going to get a chance to be heard this wasn't a performance it wasn't Christmas so she wouldn't be singing Santa baby it wasn't a play it wasn't for her to talk about her role in Batman it was she thought it was going to be a real roundtable discussion on how to help white youth black youth brown youth all youth deal with what was going on in the world and why delinquency was on the rise or she thought She thought meaningful work was going to be done. She thought her opinions would matter. She thought she would be heard. But much like the quote I mentioned earlier, it would turn out that even the soft purr of Catwoman would be too loud for the ladybird. Ooh, boy. Well, I'm I'm intrigued. I am absolutely intrigued. So, you know, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll dive in to hear what happened between the cat and the bird. And mm, it sounds like it could be quite a story. So let's take our break. Want to learn more about systemic racism? Or maybe you want to leave us a comment, rate our show, subscribe, get lots of swag, or reach out to us on social media. Well, you can. Go to our website, www.podpage.com, Why Are They So Angry? And connect with Courtney and me. You can even sign up to take our course, Systemic Racism, See It, Say It, Confront It. All that waiting for you at www.podpage.com. Why are they so angry? See you there. All righty, Courtney, we are back and I am ready to take my seat at the Women's Doer Luncheon. What happened? Well, when we left off, international superstar at the time, Eartha Kitt, had been personally invited to the White House by First Lady Johnson who most people called her Lady Bird for the Women's Doer Luncheon. Now, out of the 41 women in attendance, only seven were Black, including Eartha Kitt. Oh, well, at least they had somebody, some representation. At least they were there. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. As they say, if you don't have a seat at the table, you're on the menu. Exactly. Now, the luncheon had a rocky start. Since most, you know, treated it as a photo op and a meal, Eartha was there to get things done. And when the president himself, Lyndon B. Johnson, made a comment about how youth crime starts at home with mothers and that there needed to be more police support, Eartha Kitt called his bluff and said, well, what about working parents? Those parents who can't afford to be home all day to police their children. The president briefly spoke about his new social security bill that would have money for child care to help those parents. And then he quickly scurried out of the room. Yeah, I think he felt the heat was on. (laughs) Now, in her autobiography, Confessions of a Sex Kitten, Eartha Kitt describes becoming increasingly frustrated. And I will say this, I think every woman and especially every African-American woman has been in a situation where you hear people talking at you or talking over you, and you know what you bring to the table, and you get increasingly more upset. Mm-hmm. Been there, you know? done that. <laughs> so she watched as white woman after white woman talked about 
uh, the beautification of America. And in, in a quote from Eartha Kitt herself, they talked about the beautification of America with flower pots on the window seals of poverty. Hmm. <laughs> now, Eartha raised her hand several times to speak but was never given the floor until the end. And by that time, she, as I quote, was livid. Her ongoing advocacy, working with at-risk youth, was informed by her own upbringing and how she felt never supported by family or the government and over-policed. Her remarks that day opened with the context of this. I've lived in the gutter. That's why I know what I'm talking about. No, so she was coming from a point of understanding and knowledge. She had something to share with these women. Exactly. As she raised her hand and stood up, she told the first lady to her face exactly what she thought. Juvenile crime was a pushback against being drafted to serve in the Vietnam War. The youth of America are angry, she said. Boys I know across the nation feel it doesn't pay to be the good guy, Kit said. They figure with a record, they don't have to go to Vietnam. You send the best of this country to be shot and maimed. They rebel in the street and they will take pot and they will get hot. They don't want to go to school because they don't want to be snatched from their mothers to be shot in Vietnam, Kit continued. Mrs. Johnson, you're a mother too. And although you have daughters and not sons, you and I both know the feeling of having a baby come out of your guts. I have a baby, and when you send him off to war, no wonder these kids rebel and take pot. And Mrs. Johnson, in case you don't understand the lingo, that's marijuana. Woo, somebody just zinged <laughs> the bird. <laughs> As they rough. would say today, she, she read Lady Bird Johnson for filth and to the floorboards. Mm. Now, the room was stunned that this small-framed Black woman dared to speak to the first lady this way and the entire room and even some media reports and lady bird johnson up until a little before you know a little recently said that she burst into tears no please and women in the room came and they came around her on the mic you know the microphone to defend johnson against tiny four foot eleven eartha kid mm. Betty Betty Hughes, the wife of New Jersey Governor Richard Hughes, immediately rose to respond to Kit, noting that of her family military service. And we know this line. My family served in the military. You know, and anybody who's taking pot just because there's a war in Vietnam is some kind of kook. Well, and how about all the people that fled to uh, Canada and uh, burned their their draft cards and hid out and did all kinds of other things not to go to Vietnam? And they were of the other persuasion. But anyway, go forth with your story. Hey, a former president had bone spurs. That's why he couldn't go. (laughs) But anyway... Now, again, reports state, and they have been refuted, um, and even Lady Bird Johnson has refuted that she did not burst into tears and run out of the room. But that didn't matter. Retribution would be swift, starting as soon as Eartha left the luncheon. Mm. Eartha states that the, the White House didn't even arrange a car for her to go back to the, the hotel she was staying at. Even though they arranged for her to have a car to come to the luncheon, she did not have a way home. She had to call her own cab. And on her way back to the hotel, radio news reports were already trying to dissect what happened at the luncheon. But one thing that most Black women understand, the angry Black woman narrative had already started to spin. 
Now, according to social identities researcher Sarah J. Jackson, at least a third of the news stories on the incident painted Kit as an antagonist and an attacker of the first lady, with one news source even describing her voice as shrill. Oh boy, so the angry Black woman, she's going to be castigated, and she probably picked the wrong enemy because we know that the president has at his disposal some pretty powerful weapons. Exactly. The very next day, Lady Bird Johnson issued a formal statement saying she was sorry, and I quote, the good constructive things which speakers on the panel said were not heard. Only the shrill voice of anger and discord. Uh, the voice they should have been listening to anyway. Now, Kit, meanwhile, told reporters that her, her remarks were unplanned, but she also said, I think I'm speaking for a mil- millions of Americans across the country and people around the world. Mm. But the backlash didn't stop with just news reports and statements from the White House. Within days, according to a 1975 report from the New York Times, the CIA had compiled a, you know, a dossier of secondhand gossip. And we know from the beginning mm-hmm. of this podcast, if anybody knows how to gossip, it's the CIA and mm-hmm. the FBI. Mm-hmm. And it was at the request of President Johnson himself. He was upset that somebody had hurt his ladybird. Oh, no. Now, based pillow on, talk, pillow talk pillow is talk. pretty strong. Like she, she made Catwoman made me cry. What are you going to do about it? Like Lyndon, do something. So now, President Johnson himself based the data um, that the organization had been collecting on Kit since 1956. So she so, had been under surveillance for quite some time. Exactly. Now, the CIA's report alleged of Kit's escapades overseas. Of course, she had loose morals and she was the talk of Paris, which she was the talk of Paris because, again, Orson Welles made her Helen of Troy. Men loved her. But the story kind of gets turned over to her escapades and her loose morals. It also accused her of having a very nasty disposition, which we as Black women know she stood up for herself. She didn't take any mess and she wasn't going to be disrespected. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She had a vile tongue, which meant no one could just say anything to her and she would not back down. And she behaved like a spoiled child. Mind so you, that's she, the way the CIA described this woman who stood yes, up for her rights. For mm-hmm. her rights. And they described her as a, po- a spoiled child. She was a superstar. She was a diva. So she got what she wanted, but they described her as a spoiled child. And most infamously of all, they reported of her being a sadistic nymphomaniac. Ooh, wow, that's pretty <laughs> cold, pretty low. And in a quote from Eartha Kitt, which is one of my favorites, when they ask her about that, she's like, and what is it the CIA's business if I was? <laughs> <laughs> there you have it. But that would carry on that, especially the sadistic nymphomaniac was something that would carry on about her for the rest of her life. And soon it got to the point where work would dry up um, in America. She couldn't get a job. She was Catwoman on network television. And after that incident in 1968 with Lady Bird, she could not get work in the United States, but you can't keep a good woman down. So she went back overseas to find work since she was unhirable in the States. Now, even though she had awards and a a star on the Walk of Fame, it meant nothing. 
Um, but luckily, like I said, the Johnsons didn't understand. She was an international superstar. So she went back to Europe and went back to what she knew, performing in nightclubs, cabarets, and plays. But it wouldn't be until 1974 that Kit found the real reason why she couldn't work in America anymore. She had no idea. Now, President Johnson essentially blacklisted her from the American entertainment world because she hurt his wife's feelings. Oh, the power, the power. Mm. Now, later in life, Eartha Kitt would have a major comeback, returning to Broadway um, in Timbuktu, starring in films, back to receiving those Tony and Grammy nominations. And she would even be invited back to the White House by President Jimmy Carter. Mm. Now, a lot of us remember her in my age group. We were too young to watch it, but we watched it anyway. She was in Boomerang with Eddie Murphy. So you for- sneaked and watched that? Mm-mm-mm. I did. I did. I snuck and watched Boomerang, but she's in that. For Disney kids, she was Yesma in The Emperor's New Groove. She went back on TV and did several appearances um, on TV shows. If you're a 90s kid, she was on Living Single as well and many other appearances. But that 1968 luncheon still shows the power and the risk that it takes to be an activist and an artist. You have nailed it, Courtney. That story illustrates to us how the government can use its power to hurt people. That was a woman's livelihood. All of these people we've talked about were individuals making their living through their art. It's hard enough as it is to make a living as an artist, as a writer, a performer, a singer, whatever. But then to have the intervention of the powerhouses of the FBI and the CIA to ruin your career, that's unconscionable. That is unconscionable and un-American. And, and I get that there are dangerous people. There are books and things out there that are very dangerous. And there are dangerous people that the FBI and the CIA should be looking at. But the main goal were these were Black people talking about Black issues. And that landed them in the same category as terrorists, murderers, you know, the Klan is still out there. You're worried about Catwoman and the Klan is still prancing around. (laughs) (laughs) I'll take a Catwoman costume any day over a white sheet, but (laughs) there we go. But hey, Carol, do we have evidence that the FBI is still doing these things, still making it a practice to surveil and and watch Black African-American artists today? Well, Courtney, we can only guess that they probably do have dossiers on current Black writers like Sonia Sanchez, uh, one of my favorites, Nikki Giovanni, and other living artists and performers. But here's the catch. The Bureau, the FBI, uh, stipulates that third-party historians can see FBI files only after their subject's death. So these people, anybody who's alive today, If the FBI or the CIA has some kind of a file on them, uh, we'll have to wait to see what those uh, files reveal only after they're dead. Now, one thing is for sure, since the passage of the Patriot Act after the 9-11 attack, which, by the way, went into law in a stunning 45 days, it's actually easier for the government to spy on ordinary American citizens, not just artists and performers and writers and so on. And um, 
So we can guess that because of that act, which is so sweeping, um, and we're going to talk about it a little bit later, we can only guess that some folks are still under or are under FBI and CIA surveillance. And let's not limit this to the FBI, because there are actually, there have been and there still are, actual police task force dedicated to following hip-hop artists. And I mentioned the song earlier, Hip Hop Police. But it isn't some sort of euphemism or musical urban legend. The hip hop police were and are very real and very active in New York City, or as they're now known, the Enterprise Operations Unit. Now, it started with Derek Parker, Detective Parker, and he was a detective in the NYPD who, in 1996, joined the department's cold case squad. Now, he was a longtime hip-hop aficionado who knew a lot of the players in the industry. And following the murder of the Notorious B.I.G. in 1997, Parker says he caught up the members of the NYPD on the rap players, you know, the many layers of what was going on with the East Coast, West Coast beef and rivalry. He was doing that as a fan but then it got real sinister. In 1999, the Rap Intel Unit, a subset of the NYPD's gang intelligence unit, was officially created with Derek Parker at the helm. Its main job was to gather information on everyone in hip hop. Derek uh, Parker says, I was at the clubs, I was at concerts. And he said that in a complex um, article, interview article that he did in 2020. Wherever there was a party or event, I was there watching and looking. So this sounds a lot like uh, the Billie Holiday story where an agent had infiltrated her ranks. And here we have it, bring this up to date in uh, present day, the same concept. Exactly. The top brass of the NYPD wanted easily digestible information because you can think of the top brass of they didn't know who these people are, but they wanted a digestible, digestible information. So Parker put together files or dossiers on figures like Jay-Z, who's my husband's favorite rapper, Cameron, who's my favorite rapper, Dame Dash, who ran Rockefeller Records with Jay-Z, Buster Rhymes, 50 Cent, Ja Rule, Irv Gotti, um, and many other record labels. And he would share them with police departments in other states and cities. The Rap Intel Unit's existence was revealed in a blockbuster 2004 Miami Herald article. And I remember when this blew up. Now, the the NYPD initially denied the existence of the unit. Like, oh no, they're, they're not real. But the article's publication ended up uh, causing them to say, yes, it is real. Days later, in 2005, 2005, the files for the hip hop police would leak to the public. And it showed, uh, you know, what was really going on. And it began to have people decry the unit's existence and saying it engaged in racial stereotyping because it did not follow, you know, white rappers like Eminem, Bubba Sparks, Paul Wall. Those were not the rappers that they were following. Now, to this day, officers still create reports about rap and hip hop shows in New York and other cities, naming artists that they believe are gang members or may have rivals show up looking for trouble. Derek Parker makes a point to defend his unit as he would. Their job is to prevent things from happening. But that's the thing is you don't know 
if but anyway he says i know people think that we're monitoring rappers but it's actually for their safety oh that sounds great (laughs) (laughs) okay got it but the rap intel squad again now known as the enterprise operation unit takes that approach way too far according to many uh don florio who is an attorney that represents another one of my favorite female rappers remy ma said this they're a shadowy specialized unit that conducts overly aggressive investigations that monitor every move of these entertainment entertainers to me it's like stalking at the highest level now derek parker who shared you know his you know his information about the unit and who started the unit still defends it to this day um but it doesn't change the fact that this group has worked to shut down concerts, nightclubs, and events for certain performers as recently as 2019's Rolling Loud concert in Queens, New York. I had tickets to that, and that just did not happen. Mm-hmm. Now, the type of intense surveillance um, is worrying to many civil rights advocates like Camus Franklin. Uh, Franklin is an organizer and an activist and spent years as a civil rights attorney specializing in the issues around police misconduct to him the hip-hop police aren't just a few people gathering files and keeping track of who's hanging out with who the fact that they're watching a genre of music made largely by young black men means the ways ways the nypd as a whole treats young black men is playing out in this unit as well so anybody could look like a rapper as long as you know you have the look they might put a a file out on you so it's not helping anyone now Camus franklin continued by saying this this is a continuation of how folks in our community are watched and targeted by the police he says if you don't have an actual real probable cause to arrest somebody you shouldn't be following them. Well, Courtney, your information about the hip hop community ties right in to what uh, we have been talking about for uh, several episodes. We are under surveillance and uh, most of that surveillance is done without probable cause. Um, So I want to kind of circle back to the COINTEL Pro uh, Dirty Tricks operation and its obsession with wiping out the Black Panthers and link all of this stuff together with the artists that you've talked about uh, just recently, the ones we talked about from the past. So stick with me uh, because this is all going to make sense in a moment. The FBI... Uh, remember, was so terrified uh, about the change the Black Panthers were calling for that at one point, J. Edgar Hoover said the most dangerous threat about the Black Panther Party was their free breakfast programs because it was capturing the hearts and minds of people and making an actual difference in their lives. And he knew the real strength wasn't in the guns that the Panthers carried. It was the free breakfast, the free ambulance, and especially free education programs that were dangerous, just like these hip hop artists who talk about things going on in the community and decrying these violent acts of the police. Um, the, The idea of education is a threat and the educated, fed and united people are powerful tools. So in essence, that's the same reason why the FBI went after artists because the arts like the Panthers that uh, they feed the minds, they feed the bodies, they feed the spirits, and they can bring a powerful message and bring injustices to the forefront in vivid and meaningful ways. 
You're absolutely right. And J. Edgar Hoover is climbing up my Rutherford B. Hayes list really, <laughs> really fast because it's feeding people who need fed, educating people who need to be educated and empowering people who are powerless. And the fact that America, who is built on ideals and exceptionalism, would be so afraid that Black people get fed, educated, and empowered lets me know a lot. Well, just confirms what I already know about systemic racism. It does. It does indeed. And uh, it's ironic that the very things that we say make a difference to make a, a country great, people who are knowledgeable and go to the polls and vote with knowledge, uh, that actually that's being negated by these kinds of uh, surveillances. Now, there is, though, Courtney, an ironic twist that I want to tell you about uh, that has a surprising connection to all this business of surveillance and art and Black uh, Panthers and, and, and the attempts to discredit and silence. Sadie Barnett is from Oakland, California, and holds a, a Bachelor of Fine Arts from the California Institute of Arts and an MFA from the University of California at San Diego. Very accomplished artist. But What's particularly striking about her biography is that she's the daughter of Black Panther Rodney Barnett, who had been under surveillance by the FBI because of his work in the party and uh, his connection to players in the movement. Now, look at this. Sadie Barnett, the artist and daughter of, of the Black Panther, she did a solo exhibition in New York City entitled, quote, Do Not Destroy. And it's actually made up of the 500-page FBI surveillance file that had been amassed on her father during his time in the Black Panther Party. And she turned it into visual art. And uh, in 2016, that's when the Black Panther Party marked its 50th anniversary, was also the date that the Barnett family finally received the FBI files. And it proved that uh, what Barnett had long suspected, he had been followed. Now, his daughter took those files in 2017 and turned them into a work of art. And she says of the work, quote, I wanted to repair some of the trauma. I really love that idea of using what the government, um, tools of the government that they were going to use to destroy or discredit um, her father and the Black Panther Party, she turned it into an art piece. And that is like the biggest kind of piece of artistic rebellion that someone could do, taking the tools that you use to tear me down, to build up the arts and bring attention to the story. You've got it right. You've got it right. She took those pages with J. Edgar Hoover's signature on it, uh, pages that uh, talked about his movements with activists like Angela Davis and so on. And she took all of that uh, and literally turned it into a work of art that scorned the FBI. Now, as a as a daughter, I know that her dad was proud, but also as a daughter, I know that would be scary to read all of those, you know, dates and times and the government was really looking at her dad as if he was some villain or monster. Yes, it was. But here's the here's the best part about it. Uh, when they interviewed Rodney Barnett about the exhibit and uh, how he felt, he said, you know what? Seeing it on the wall out in public, I feel free now. And that's amazing. And that's what art should do. Make you feel free. 
That is, it should. It should free your mind, free your soul, and free you to act. Now, Sadie Barnett feels the work is particularly important and relevant today. She talked about her father's surveillance as, quote, an entire campaign of managing perception so that the Black Panthers were seen as radical terrorists instead of real people trying to assert their humanity. And she warns, we see the same sort of thing happening with the Black Lives Matter movement, which has also been under surveillance. Now, I've read the FBI has a lot of power now, like you said, through the Patriot Act. They can issue something called national security letters that allow them access to a citizen's phone, bank records, Internet, and even credit records. Oh, all of the above, Courtney. The law widely expands the government's authority to monitor our privacy. While most Americans think it was created to catch terrorists, the Patriot Act actually turns regular citizens into suspects. Now, those national security letters open up private citizens' records to law enforcement without having to get a judge's approval. Now, what's even more frightening is the act does not require information obtained uh, to be destroyed, even if the information concerns innocent Americans. The information is accessible by thousands of law enforcement agencies and never goes away. And there's even a gag order provision that prohibits citizens from telling that they're under a national security letter. Isn't there even a provision in the Patriot Act that allows something called a sneak peek? Yes, there is. Yes, there is. Now, contrary to the Fourth Amendment that prohibits the unlawful search and seizure, the Patriot Act allows government agents to enter a house or apartment or an office if now they have to have a search warrant to do this, but they can do it while the occupant is away. They can search through the person's property, take photographs, and in some cases, even seize property and electric, uh, electronic communications and not tell the owner that they've done this until later. So has all this hyper surveillance resulted in capturing terrorists? What is this law supposed to be doing? Well, it's supposed to capture terrorists. But here's what I've learned. Between 2003 and 2008, the FBI issued almost 195,000 national security letters. And all of those letters led to only one terror-related conviction. And of the almost 4,000 sneak peeks in 2010, fewer than 1% revealed a terror threat. And I've said it before, and 1%, the Klan is still around. They're <laughs> still hopping around. So for all this, you still haven't torn down America's first terrorist group. Nope. The nope. first terrorist group is still loud and proud, but... Is there some way a person can find out if there are FBI records collected on public figures like artists and the activists we talked about? Well, yes, there, yes, there is, Courtney. Over the years, the FBI has collected information about many, many people in the public arena. You'd be surprised. And much of that information is available to the public at a site called vault.fbi.gov 
gov. Now, the FBI ha has converted many Freedom of Information Act documents to electronic form. And if, uh, uh, but if the files are really, really large, uh, like that one I talked about, about James Baldwin, uh, there are only summaries or excerpts, but you can still see them. Now, the individuals who are in this file, they're sorted alphabetically by first name, and there's also a category index grouped by titles like civil rights, organizations, popular culture, and so on. So if you know of a public figure and want to know if there is an FBI file, now this is a public figure that's already deceased, I believe, uh, you can go to that uh, file, go to that, that uh, site called vault, vault.fbi.gov, and you can see. And that's right. I used that website for our MLK episode where we talked about the FBI files on Martin Luther King Jr. So if you want to be a, a historical sleuth or you just want to look up some of this information or see if there's somebody that you know on the FBI files, you can definitely use that website. There you have it. Well, Courtney, we have spent a lot of time and we've covered a lot of ground on this business of surveillance and how the FBI, the CIA and other law enforcement agencies use their powers to try to silence uh, activists, artists, people who are using their voice to make a stand against systemic racism. And I hope this uh, heightened awareness that we have brought will allow people uh, to look at this and realize that freedom is not free. It comes at a very high cost. But if you would like to see our archives of episodes or just to see where we are online, feel free to visit us at our website, www.podpage.com slash why are they so angry? That brings today's episode to a close. We hope you join us next time where we continue providing the answer to the question, why are they so angry? As always, we hope you learn something so you can see it, say it, and confront it.